This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Joshua Lucy, a primary care physician assistant at Mayo Clinic's Rochester campus. Today, we're going to address the care of the LGBTQIA patient. And you know, I think to understand the overall care of this population, a good background knowledge of some of the healthcare disparities that exist in this group is important. To scratch the surface, among our LGBTQIA youth, these individuals are more likely than their heterosexual peers to report health risk behaviors, including attempted suicide, substance use, high risk sexual behaviors, unhealthy eating or exercise patterns, and this group also suffers experiences of both victimization and violence. Some of these youth are even rejected by their parents and families and may run away or be forced to leave their homes, rendering them homeless. In a 2019 national survey of high school students, LGBTQIA students were more likely than their heterosexual peers to report being threatened or injured with a weapon or bullied on school property and missed school due to safety concerns. Among our LGBTQIA adults, these individuals are less likely to have a healthcare provider and are more likely to rate their health as poor and report having more chronic conditions while having less social support. This population is also less likely to have health insurance and were also found to have higher rates of HPV infection and related cervical or anal cancers. Additionally, gay, bisexual, and other men who report having male-to-male sexual contact are disproportionately affected by HIV. And this group of patients accounted for 68% of all new HIV diagnoses in 2020, according to the CDC. Lastly, lesbians and bisexual women have higher rates of breast cancer, and transgender men and women are both at greater risk of this. To help address some of these disparities, today we are going to be joined by Dr. Jewel Kling. Jewel is a Mayo Clinic physician and professor of medicine from our Scottsdale, Arizona campus, and currently serves as the chair of the Division of Women's Health Internal Medicine. She is also an assistant director of the Women's Health Center and is associate chair of equity, inclusion, and diversity for the Department of Medicine in Mayo Clinic, Arizona. Her clinical and research interests are in menopause, sexual health, and LGBT care. She is part of the Transgender Steering Committee at Mayo Clinic, Arizona, and has been a past co-chair of the LGBTI Mayo Employee Research Group. Thank you for joining us today, Jewel. Josh, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for featuring this extremely important topic. What sobering statistics that you shared, and I hope everybody that's listening, it just tuned them in a little bit more closely to know how important it is so that we can provide the type of care that our LGBTQ patients really deserve. So thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. We're excited to have your expertise here. And, you know, Jewel, before we get started today, could you help us in defining, you know, what is LGBTQIA plus that big acronym? You know, what does that actually mean for our listeners? such an important place to start. And I think part of the hesitation of many of us in medicine is not even understanding the terminology or the acronym. So yeah, let's definitely start there. So lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, and then the Q is queer. And we can kind of go through each of those and and talk about them in more detail. It may be helpful for us even to look a little bit big picture to talk first about sex and gender because although all of us have gone through medical training it's kind of surprising how limited our exposure to those really important kind of basic definitions are does that sound good absolutely yeah so topic of sex and gender what would you say how do we define sex and do we normally say sex defined at birth or how would you break that down 
Yeah, I think that's a, a great place. And typically, like when we're trying to ask a patient about their gender, doing a, a two-step gender identification, so asking them their sex recorded at birth, and then their gender identity, which all of us have both of those. And maybe looking a little bit more big picture, typically there's four components that each of us have that go into sex and gender. There's sex, the chromosomal or anatomic sex. There's sexual orientation, which is the gender a person is attracted to. There's gender expression, how we manifest ourselves through social norms of masculine or feminine or variant or kind of none of the above. And then there's gender identity. When we're talking about determining somebody's gender, first of all, it's not our job as clinicians to determine somebody's gender, right? We don't diagnose somebody. It's an internal sense and everybody knows what their gender identity is. But the important point about knowing all four of these, Josh, is that knowing that you can't make an assumption about one based on the other. So if somebody comes in presenting themselves very feminine, you can't assume that their sex recorded at birth was, was female. In the same vein, you can't assume which I think based on societal norms that, oh, if they're female, they are a woman, they must be heterosexual, like they have sex with men. And so because all of these are different, it really behooves us as clinicians to, well, first of all, provide a space where people feel they can be their authentic self with us, but then ask them about each of these components. Absolutely. So giving them the space to kind of introduce themselves. And, you know, I don't know about you, but in today's day and age with the electronic system, I kind of see a lot of self-entered genders on the EMR. And I don't even have to ask most people because it's already in there. Is that something you see a lot down in your practice too? Yeah. And isn't that so great that we now have supportive electronic medical records that yeah. give patients that opportunity to identify who they are, saving them that embarrassment or concern as they're coming into their doctor's office, whether or not they're going to have to disclose something. But yeah, absolutely. And EPIC, which we use at Mayo, the SOGI field or the sex, sexual orientation and gender identification allows patients to self-enter that information. Yeah. And I think it's important to mention too, Joel, what do you think? But in terms of gender identity and sexual orientation, both of these aren't fixed either. I mean, someone can say what they choose to identify with or who they're attracted to, but that could be different at the next visit. Absolutely. I mean, going back to the fact that all of us have these components and it influences all of it. So it's not just looking at a, a specific population, but recognizing that this applies to all of our patients. We know we all change. Like I think back about myself back when I was 11 or 12, to give an example of this four components. So my sex recorded at birth is female, my gender identity is a woman. But when I was younger, I played a lot of sports. I had two younger brothers and I dressed like what was called a tomboy. So my gender expression was male. But now I've evolved and, and I, you know, most times my gender expression is going to be very consistent with what a societal norm of female or a woman. And so just like me, we would anticipate probably you, Josh, and our patients do that too. And so, yeah, not mandating that it, it stays the same, that we give people the opportunity to express who they are and how they are. Agree. And just some terms that our clinicians might hear, you know, when you mention how your gender identity or expression can change over time, topic of being gender fluid, one day you might be masculine, the other day you might feel feminine. And some people don't even identify, correct me if I'm wrong, but male or female, it's like something that doesn't even have a word to it yet. 
Yeah, some would use uh, non-binary or genderqueer as the terminology, a label, if you will, to identify those people that are not fully male or female or identify as woman or male, but somewhere in between. Right. And in terms of sexual orientation, too, for our clinicians out there, I think a lot of us are well accustomed to heterosexual, homosexual, and bisexual. But I think the topic of, you know, do you mind shedding some light on what you would define as like a pansexual or someone who's asexual? Yeah. So asexual, somebody who's not interested in, in sex. And mm-hmm. then pansexual, somebody who's kind of open to, to all identities. Yeah. And that asexual, it's good to mention too, as the last in our LGBTQIA, correct me if I'm wrong too, but would you say asexuals are also capable of being in relationships? It's just, they don't are interested in sex per se. Absolutely. Yeah. A hundred percent. And again, this is the opportunity to make sure we're not placing our judgment of, of how we think kind of the normal family or the normal person, the normal relationship should function, whatever kind of makes sense for somebody is fine and it is normal. So, and it gives us the opportunity to really practice as clinicians, our poker face, if you will, because patients might share something with us that's very different than we've experienced or even that we've learned, but recognizing that, hey, our job is not to judge them. Our job is to take care of them. And yes. what you started off, Josh, with those really sobering statistics about the disparities, this population is in great need of care from people like us that can provide inclusive care. Can I just say some uh, a point here, yeah. Josh, about those disparities, just so we don't go on too far without uh, highlighting this? Yes. You know, I think people, clinicians, we hear disparities and we want to know the root cause. With many of the disparities that you shared, these are not because these people are lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender. So it doesn't have to do with their sex or their gender. But in fact, it's related to the stigma and discrimination that they face in our society. And some of that, unfortunately, has been at the hand of medicine and clinicians. In fact, a survey, I believe in 2016, looking at people that had attempted suicide that were transgender, 60% of those people had had a doctor refuse to treat them in the past. Above and beyond understanding the terminology, it's it's our job to create that inclusive environment so people feel welcome so that they can get the needed care. 100%. I think everyone should come to the office feeling like it's a judgment-free zone and really cultivating that idea of like what a medical home is. And I try mm-hmm. to make sure I can do that for most of my patients. So definitely agree with you there. Kind of getting into the acronym a bit more, the acronym is a bit more than just an acronym. It addresses both sexual orientation and gender identity. So maybe starting off with first three of those, lesbian, gay, and bisexual, how would you say you approach a patient when they come to your office and they identify as one of these three things? And do you mind kind of giving a little bit more insight into, into this population a little? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to hear, Josh, how you approach these yeah. patients in your practice too. But maybe the first point is to say, our sexual orientation, our gender identity is only one part of who we are. Right. So as a clinician, I'm going to care for everybody equally. Exactly. And I'm not going to sit them down and be like, oh, okay, you're a lesbian. Let me see what health disparities influence you differently than somebody else. Right. Yes. And thankfully for a majority of the care that we provide in primary care, like the screenings and things like that are going to be just the same exactly. as our, our cisgender or heterosexual patients. Would you agree? hundred percent agree. 
yeah I, I i believe too that like that it's just one aspect of of a of a one person so it doesn't define them by any means now yeah but i, I think just also making them feel as though you're an ally i think is important mm-hmm. so i don't know about you but one of the things that we do to help promote environment here is we wear these nice pronoun badges here now that's not yep. everything but i think it's just one thing to show that hey i'm open i'm here i'm supportive um, i'm here for you and and i've had some people come to see me and say hey I saw that you were listed as LGBT friendly. And I think that's silly that you even have to list yourself as friendly, but I think just labeling yourself as such out on out on, the, on the internet for whatever you list your professional profile is something that these patients find welcoming. But I have had that happen. I don't know about, what would you say there, but. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that, Josh. I think we need more of that. Somebody that either personally has had an experience where they felt rejected or judged in a setting are gonna be looking for all those cues is this somebody I can trust? Is this somebody I can tell the truth about my life and who I am authentically? And although we may call it a small sign, like putting that on a website or wearing a pronoun pin, that's Mm -hmm. the sign that that person needs that, yes, I can be my authentic self in this space. And it breaks the ice a little. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I like what you said too, is that you don't have to look at someone and say, all right, what disparities do these people face. Mm-hmm. I think just looking at this person as a whole person, and if they come to you requesting certain things, by all means, do what they're requesting. Is there any like routine care that you would say that like, if this is just like a well visit and they come in, is there anything that you're routinely making sure that you're addressing or bringing up? Yeah, definitely. First of all, making sure that they're up to date on all the all their healthcare maintenance or preventative studies. So looking right. at opportunities for immunizations, screenings like uh, breast cancer, or cervical cancer, or right. other screenings, and then using that kind of non-judgmental approach to ask about sexual practices. And although we're talking about the LGBT community, there's people that may not identify as being gay or homosexual, but may have high-risk practices like men who have sex with men. And if that's the case, your sexually transmitted infection screening practice may look a little bit different because there's higher risk for things like HIV. So for example, people that are having cisgender men or transgender women that are having sex with men or anal receptive intercourse are going to be at higher risk for things like HIV. So you likely are going to be screening on an annual basis, both for Mm -hmm. HIV and other STIs, and then talking to them about things like pre-exposure prophylaxis. Yeah. Do you mind talking a little bit about using PrEP? You know, is this something that you think all patients should have and not just the MSM population? Yeah. You set that up beautifully, Josh. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Anybody who's at risk for HIV, either men who have sex with men or folks that are in discordant relationships where one partner has HIV and the other doesn't, those are people that would benefit from pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is an effective tool at reducing that risk of, of HIV transmission. And do you, do you have a lot of patients in the women's health clinic who, who do take this as a female or do you mostly see this in males? Yeah, I don't have a lot of cisgender women that are taking this, but our practice doesn't have a, we're not in a catchment area where there's a high rate or uh, of of HIV, but within Phoenix, like downtown Phoenix, there certainly is. And I have colleagues that have worked in those practices that both, you know, men who have sex with men, transgender patients, and even cisgender women in those discordant relationships that are on PrEP. 
Okay, yeah, and, and I think regardless of if you're in this community or not, there's that universal recommendation for everyone to be screened at least, you know, once in their lifetime for HIV or and hepatitis yeah. C, you know, I said from the USPS task force. So making sure that everyone, regardless of their involvement in this community is screened for that. That's an excellent point. And thankfully our EMRs are now kind of triggering that. So we remember to have that conversation, even with, with patients that maybe are, thought process may be like, they're really low risk, I don't need to screen them. But the two things there is the reason the USPSTF made that recommendation is because a large percentage of the people that still have these diagnoses don't have symptoms or undiagnosed. And so screening everybody is a better tool, especially because we have treatment options. Mm -hmm. But the, the other part of that, Josh, is that we bring a lot of assumptions and even unconscious biases into the exam room with us. Yes. And if we're using our assumptions based of somebody to, to do our clinical care, we're not going to be providing them that really, you know, comprehensive whole person care. So I totally agree. Because yeah. a standard, like you said, you know, I think a lot of our patients just kind of request when they want STD screening for in terms of like that routine care. So when anyone requests anything like this, I usually end up just doing the whole panel for them. And that usually includes like an HIV, hepatitis C, hepatitis B, and syphilis with gonorrhea, chlamydia, mm -hmm. and trick. Is this kind mm -hmm. of your practice too to routinely yep. Yep. everything? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. In the same vein, if you screen some or if you test somebody and one of those are positive, make sure that you're looking for all the other sexual transmitted infections too. So if yeah. you diagnose the gonorrhea, make sure you've taken the opportunity to look at all the other ones too. Yeah. And do you, are you a proponent of the partner's positive treat the opposite partner as well? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just, as you probably saw, I have a master's in public health. So from a public health perspective, any opportunity we can take to reduce communicable diseases or sexually transmitted infections by treating partners or, you know, other information, I think is a, a great opportunity. I totally agree. And on that topic with immunizations, I think we can help prevent some of these things with hepatitis A, hepatitis B, making sure everyone's green for these things. But do you mind sharing, Fo, on the topic of an HPV vaccine and even the monkeypox vaccine too for this population? I suspect we're moving in the direction where most people should have the HPV vaccine, even if they're out of the traditional kind of age categories that have been recommended. In fact, in our, our practice in women's health, it's pretty routine to offer it to women that haven't had it before. Thankfully, we're starting to see many of the kind of younger population that already had opportunity to have it. Beyond things like anorectal cancer and cervical cancer, we see high rates of or oral cancers that are HPV related. So reasons rather to get the HPV vaccine to folks. Yeah, this HPV being so darn pre-malignant, do you mind kind of talking on that with like our male population? Because I feel like we as yeah. a medical community do a great job at um, doing pap smears, at least the best we can to screen our female patients for signs of HPV. And if there's any signs that are abnormal on their pap, doing that at, their, at the level of their cervix. For our male patients who receive receptive anal intercourse, that group is at higher risk of anal cancer, but we don't routinely swab them for signs mm -hmm. of HPV. What is your comment on that? What should we be doing this more? Is there only certain situations or what would you say yeah. there? Well, you make a great 
point, and first, maybe that's important to point out to our listeners so that they know that anogenital human papillomavirus or infection is highly prevalent among men who have sex with men. And so it certainly needs to be on our radar and using certain triggers, like if a man has perianal warts and he's having receptive intercourse, that would be an opportunity to do a swab and and get cytology to do an anal pap. And there's other indications, certainly men who have HIV, people who have HIV, women who have HIV are immunocompromised are likely at higher risk too. The really challenging part, Josh, which I'm sure you encounter in your clinical practice too, is there's not like a set of really clearly defined guidelines to say, here's when you do it. So we were talking about the electronic medical record being really helpful to guide (laughs) us to doing those screenings, but there's, there's not any about anal paps. No, uh uh-uh. And it slips through the cracks and the technical skill, I think a lot of people might have some questions about, but to my reading, I think it's mostly just using our same cytology brush that we do with our regular cervical paps. And then I think it's a well-established practice to do in those patients who are positive for Mm -hmm. HIV, but it's Mm -hmm. less clear in those who aren't. Is that true? Yep. A hundred percent. Yep. I think at the end of the day, it really comes down to that shared decision-making with the patient and letting them know that these results may be ambiguous and we might have to have a multidisciplinary team pending the results because we Uh don't quite have the best guidelines yet. Yeah. And then asking about those symptoms, you know, rectal bleeding, warts, those type of things, which patients may not volunteer. I mean, if, Mm -mm. if we're talking about patients being uncomfortable, even disclosing their sexual orientation or their gender identity, then sharing really personal information about their bodies is going to be challenging. So proactively saying that, or my patients that that do this sometimes have these symptoms. Is this something that you've experienced? It may not be the first time you meet that patient or even the second time, but if you're creating that space where they feel comfortable, hopefully they'll tell you, and then you can figure that out together. Absolutely. And I think this goes back to getting a good patient history too, because if you ask someone, you can't assume who they're having sex with. So something I would say is, are you having sex with males, females, or both. That only does encapsulate though, males and females. So I don't know if there's a better language I should use to say more broader genders. Is there any things you would recommend in that situation or? Well, and it may be like, tell me more about your sexual practices. What does that sure. look like? Cause even if you're having sex with exclusively men or women, you don't know, is that anal intercourse? Is that vaginal? Is that oral? And the goal is not because we're just really interested to know what type of sex you're having, but recognizing (laughs) that these associate with different risks for different sexually transmitted infections and knowing those practices are going to guide the recommendations for screening or for testing. And it probably makes sense for us to say that before we start asking about sexual practices, especially for a population that may be on edge thinking that, uh, is this doctor just asking because they're curious? They want to know about my sexual practices, but no, hey, I want this information because it's going to help me take better care of you and individualize this treatment to, to your practices and your risks. Absolutely. On the topic of cancer, I feel like we should talk about just overall cancer screening in this group. So that's kind of talks about the anal cancer where we need to get better guidelines and mm-hmm. kind of share, lean on our colleagues when there's times of, of, of question, probably from infectious disease and colorectal colleagues mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. maybe very multidisciplinary, but getting into like prostate and breast and ovarian cancer, uterine cancers, do you mind commenting on that at all? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe I'll just say one last thing about immunizations, because you'd mentioned monkeypox, but just yes. for people that are listening, because that was a big thing, what, about three months ago or so? Yes. 
and it's it's still you know there, we're still seeing um, cases, so it's important for us to be aware. The first thing I just recently learned is that the CDC has updated the terminology, so they're calling it mpox instead mm. of monkeypox. So for people to know, and the goal was to align with the recent World Health Organization decision to reduce stigma and other issues associated with the prior terminology, just so clinicians know if they're talking about it or looking looking it up. The other thing is that the vaccine is the J-Y-N-N-E-O-S vaccine. That's a two-step vaccine, one at baseline, and then the second dose four weeks after the first dose. And the CDC has some really nice guidelines for anybody that's interested about knowing who needs to get it, or if you have your go-to infectious disease expert that you can contact. But the reason we're talking about it in this context is because we've seen most of the cases in men who have sex with men. And while it's not considered necessarily sexually transmitted infection, it can be transmitted because of that close contact that happens. And so this population needs to be monitored and offered the, the vaccine, especially in, in locations that may be at higher prevalence of the mpox. Absolutely. And, I, and not just as a routine vaccination, but also I think we're doing it as a post-exposure form, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. You- so yeah, good to bring up. And uh, yeah, I agree with you. It kind of almost got lost its attention as it got a lot of press and then it just kind of fell aside there. So mm-hmm. still being aware that this is out there, this is in the community mm-hmm. and hopefully this can be more of a widespread vaccine once we have more supply. I think it's a mm-hmm. lot of supply too. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, if you have any qu- patients that ask about it and they want it, I feel like that puts them at high risk by inherently asking for it. So therefore just vaccinate them if you can in your community. Some might think, okay, well, then where do I get the vaccine if it's not readily available at their office? Again, go to the CDC website. They have tools that'll help you find where those vaccines are available too. Perfect. I wanted to talk to you about this cancer screening. I think this is good to bring up just as a routine thing and also how it can be sometimes maybe missed if you have like a transgender patient, because Mm -hmm. depending on what organs they still have or don't have or how they want to identify or how they don't, I think it's important to make sure that we know what they have and we're screening for the appropriate cancers of what organs remain. So yeah, what do you, what are you, what is your practice of that? You think of overall cancer screenings? Well said, Josh, for transgender patients and non-binary patients doing an organ inventory to know which organ specific cancer screening needs to be done is important. That is certainly, I think, a barrier to the disparity of less cancer screening in the population, but the other is what we've already kind of talked about. And <laughs> keep going back to this, right? If people feel like they can't access healthcare and be cared for or present themselves as as their authentic self, they're not going to come and see you. For a transgender male, it's challenging. I mean, even our women's health practice is called women's health internal medicine. And we care for, for transgender men doing cervical cancer screening Mm. or whatever term they want to use, but looking for cervical cancer But walking into a waiting room where it says women's health everywhere or a gynecology office where it's all OB and other things can be really challenging. And so I think that probably lends itself to an opportunity for us in healthcare to figure out how we do a better job of creating an environment where more accepting. I suspect in a practice like yours, Josh, where it's not necessarily gender specific, it may be easier for patients to come in and say, hey, yeah, I'm due or I haven't had this screening. Can you please get me up to date? Absolutely. 
the other thing is breast cancer screening yeah. and, and transgender people. And the challenge here is what we like in medicine is evidence-based, you know, treatment or recommendations. And unfortunately we don't have good research or evidence to guide the recommendations. Thankfully, there are societies that have put together expert mostly expert-driven recommendations or extrapolations from cisgender people like the Endocrine Society or the American College of Radiology. And actually the American College of Radiology probably has the most robust recommendations for screening, breast cancer screening for transgender people. But mm-hmm. just, just generally for clinicians, if a, a transgender male is coming in. So transgender male is somebody whose sex recorded at birth is female and their gender identity is masculine or, or a man. Typically, they may be on masculizing hormones like testosterone. If they still have their breasts intact, then they should undergo routine breast cancer screening. So the USPSTF would say start at 50 and do that every other year. You would individualize that based on personal characteristics. So if, for example, they had a genetic predisposition like a BRCA, that would be different or significant family history. For those that have had a a bilateral mastectomy, like their whole breast tissue has been removed, then you don't do any breast cancer screening like a mammogram. You could do a chest wall exam, which is kind of listed in some of those expert guidelines, but again, not really based on robust data. Do you mind talking about that? Like what what would you include as a chest wall exam? Is it mostly a inspection palpation situation? Exactly. mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. Look at the axilla, make sure that there's no lymphadenopathy. That should be sufficient. What's important here though, is making sure you know what surgery they had, because if they just had a reduction, they're still going to have breast tissue and you still need to be conscientious about breast cancer screening in that, that scenario. For transgender women, so women that their sex recorded at birth were was male, but their gender identity is a woman. Mm-hmm. Typically, the recommendation is to start based on those age categories for cisgender women if they've been on gender affirming hormone therapy for more than five years and gender forming mm. hormone therapy is typically going to be an estrogen and oftentimes with an androgen blocker, such as, you know, spironolactone. And so after uh, five years of use, then starting routine mammograms would make sense. You would just make sure you're asking about those higher risk situations. So family history, genetic mutations, those type of things. Jewel, do you mind commenting on just briefly, like how a patient gets started on gender affirming hormone therapy? They're interested in this just for our, our, our colleagues out there to be aware. How does, what is the criteria they need to meet to do that? Yeah, gosh, that might be a whole other podcast session sure. to talk about, but gender affirming hormone therapy is an important component of, of both transgender and non-binary care for somebody to live authentically in their body. Oftentimes the need to make sure that it it matches with their identity is important. For somebody who's a transgender man, again, sex recorded at birth was female, gender identity is man, then starting androgen or testosterone, many different ways to give it, injections, gels, kind of typically how we would give to cisgender men who have hypogonadism, but at higher doses. Yeah. 
and that's typically, I mean, there's more specifics if you're sure. interested and if, if somebody wants to prescribe this, um, both in the Endocrine Society guidelines, but also the uh, WPATH guidelines, which just came out in September of last year that has the latest information about how to both prescribe, because you'll want some basic labs, you'll need to monitor labs as well, both after initiation and then kind of routinely after that time. And I, I know you also asked, like, how do you get them started? There is a process, right? It needs to be a discussion, risks and benefits. Typically, these people have gender dysphoria, meaning that there's some dysphoria associated with that discrepancy between the sex recorded at birth and the gender identity. Sometimes mental health professional will be included in that, both recognizing that this is a challenging transition and situation. And historically, most people have faced a lot of discrimination, stigma, which contributes to higher rates of depression and things. So to optimize the transition, typically a prescriber of the hormone therapy and a mental health professional, not that that needs to be a barrier though, the mental health professional, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then just briefly for transgender women, they'll be started on uh, feminizing hormones. So estrogen, but oftentimes after an androgen blocker. So something like spironolactone will be started. And then sometime after that, um, an estrogen can be started many times for transgender men, which I didn't mention, you'll want progestin both for cycle control or bleeding and possibly for contraception as well. For transgender women, the progesterone is a little bit more controversial, if you will. It's not necessarily part of the standard recommendations, but for some, it seems to benefit breast development. So that was maybe a little bit more detail than no, you wanted, but the, the basics. So, so people, cause, and it's not that we expect all clinicians to be prescribing gender affirming hormone therapy, although I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Josh, yeah. but I think many of us in primary care are equipped with the tools that we certainly could. Absolutely. But even if you're not the prescriber, we're in a, our Mayo model of care means that we have a collaborative team. And oftentimes I'm working alongside an endocrinologist that's prescribing that. Mm -hmm. But I, I need to know what to look for when I'm yeah. getting a CBC on somebody that's on testosterone. And if they're hemoglobin hematocrit are elevated, right. you know, what's the next step, those type of things. So, no, I think you hit the nail on the head, it's just a matter of involving that multidisciplinary team. And if that's your niche, by all means, go for it. And if you don't feel the most adequate, definitely involving in your other colleagues. And then maybe after you're doing it so often, you can get the feed under yourself and maybe do it for your patients after you mm -hmm. have done it so much, but yeah, it totally mm -hmm. depends. And, but yeah, thank you. And I just want to make sure we kind of hit, go through our acronym here to make sure that we include everyone in this group. So I think we talked a lot about how the care of our patients who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. I think briefly, it's worth mentioning the Q in, in that acronym stands for queer. And that's historically a harmful word. And I don't think it's something that we should default to saying. I don't know what you see in your practice, but what would you say about kind of the, the QIA portion of, of the LGBTQIA plus acronym? Is there something that you routinely see or say in this group or? No, but I think you bring up a, a great point, Josh, yeah. that is a term that perhaps the community wants to reclaim and use if that makes sense for them. Well, we started with this focus on understanding terminology and working our best to get it right, really listening to our patients and letting them guide that discussion, even as far as it goes for uh, body parts. So somebody who's a transgender male may not want me using the terms vagina or cervix because those, even though they're medical terms also have these kind of gendered societal 
ideas along with them too. So I think relying right. on what your patient refers. Intersex is a, a, a different kind of category. That's dis- disorders of sexual development. So folks that are born with ambiguous genitalia or other kind of genetic abnormalities. And that may be another podcast too, but recognizing Absolutely. that giving them the opportunity to figure out for themselves what their gender identity is. And it doesn't matter what your not that I'm saying it doesn't matter what your anatomy looks like, but it doesn't matter when it relates to your gender identity. You get to choose that yourself. So absolutely. I think we briefly talked to you about the asexual group. And mm-hmm. lastly, the plus. You know, I think a lot of people are like, what is that plus? How would you describe that to somebody? How I think of it is it just in an effort to be as inclusive as possible and recognizing yeah. that the terminology is ever evolving and that as we give people permission, the live authentically, that may look different for different people. So I don't know, totally how do you, how do you describe the plus? That's how I would say it too. It's just for how people who don't, who look at the, these LGBTQIA and they say, Hmm, I don't really see myself in any of these things, but I don't really see myself as totally heterosexual or male or female either. So I'm somewhere on there, but I don't know mm-hmm. quite where, and maybe getting back to like that four characteristics thing that you're talking about earlier, that mm-hmm. maybe they're not quite as extreme on one side, but maybe they're softly one way and softly another, but there's not really a word for that yet. <laughs> That's kind of how I would say, but, but no, I totally yeah. agree. It's really important to be as an inclusive, inclusive nature about it. But so, yeah, so Jewel, thank you. And as a summary, what would you say are kind of like the biggest take-home points for, for this population? What should the person listening to this podcast really glean from this, you think, going into their practices? Thank you for asking me that. I think yeah. first of all is that point again, started with the sobering statistics, increased rates of depression, anxiety, trauma, suicidal ideation or suicide in general, higher rates of cancer, smoking, alcohol. These disparities are largely, if not almost all rooted in stigma and discrimination. So recognizing it's not because our patient's a lesbian or gay or transgender, but it's because they've experienced this stigma and discrimination. And on the flip side of that, recognizing what a powerful role that we can play in their lives by being intentional about creating an inclusive space where they feel they can be their authentic self. All the other logistics we talked about, Josh, today, looking up the screening for males who have sex with males or MPOX or those things, you got up to date, look at those, but it's making sure that you're patient feels comfortable sharing with you and sharing about who they are, that's just going to give you that opportunity to really take care of them at a different level. Absolutely. Just kind of treating everyone with genuine respect and treating all humans as just humans and making it a supportive medical home, I think is kind of the message. And what's great about that is that applies to everybody, right? I mean, we're talking about the LGBTQ (laughs) plus community, but that applies to every single patient we see. And I think it just makes us better clinicians and serves our patients better. So Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, gosh, thank you so much for our listeners. We've been talking about LGBTQIA plus health with Dr. Jewel Kling, a Mayo Clinic physician from our Arizona campus. Jewel, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking with you today. And um, thank you so much for your time and great expertise. I hope that we can help drop some of these disparities as we move forward as a medical community. I hope so too. Thank you so much, Josh. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow us on your favorite podcasting app or visit us online at ce.mayo.edu. Until next time, this is Joshua Lucy for the Mayo Clinic Talks podcast. Have a great day, everybody.